It is especially good to know that I'm giving you all a break. I know it is much needed. It has been much wanted for all of you, and so I'm glad I could assist each and every one of you with that. And so is Hudson, apparently. In all seriousness, it is great to be here with you this morning. Uh, Ron and I, of course, are excited to be able to be here, excited to uh, get to see Gigi and Poppy bring the kids here, and excited this morning that we get to spend some time worshiping with you all. I get to spend some time sharing with you some something from the Word of God this morning. If you want to go ahead and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, the 13th chapter, we're going to take our lesson text this morning from a lesser-known parable of Jesus. It's commonly known as the parable of the net, uh, the parable of the dragnet, perhaps. Uh, your Bible may call it that. It goes, it's separated a little bit. It goes hand in hand with a parable a little bit earlier in the 13th chapter, uh, the parable of the weeds. And these are separated just a little bit. The parable of the weeds is much longer. You probably know it better. But they go well together. They have essentially the same message in all of this. So go ahead and look there in Matthew chapter 13. Let's start together in verse 47 uh, this morning. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, if you've gone and you've, again, you probably know the parable of the weeds that's uh, earlier in Matthew chapter 13. And there's a section there starting about, about verse 36, I believe, where Jesus explains the parable of the weeds to uh, those that are listening to him. As I mentioned, this parable is very similar to that. And the message is largely the same. The point is largely the same. And we're going to look at that and explore that a little bit more completely, a little bit more thoroughly this morning, but what I want us to look at in the few minutes we have together uh, this morning. First and foremost is that good or righteousness, as it refers to here in the text, must exist with unrighteousness, that is, with evil. Now, I'm going to tell you something right now. I want you to, to listen very closely. This is going to come as a big shock to many of you. Our world, the world that we live in right now, is evil. If you don't believe me, after service this morning, go home, turn on any news station you want to find. Pick up your phone, your smartphone, most of you probably have one. Open up a news app on your phone. Go read a newspaper, go read a magazine, turn the radio on in the car driving home this afternoon. In moments, if you have any doubt whatsoever, in mere moments, you will discover our world is full of evil. Now, this isn't a new development. We, we sometimes think that it is, oh, the world's worse than it's ever been. We can discuss that at another time if you'd like. But the existence of evil itself is nothing that is new. It is something that is as old as mankind itself. The coexistence of evil alongside of good, alongside of us, of God's people. 
has been an ever-present and an ever-frustrating part of life for those that are endeavoring to serve and to follow God. One of my favorite stories in all the Bible is found in 1 Kings chapter 18. It's a story you know very well. It's the story of a guy by the name of Elijah. And in 1 Kings chapter 18, what has happened is that Elijah has decided to challenge the followers, the prophets of Baal, to a contest to see who is the one true God. And so they have gotten together. They're going to have a, uh, I guess you could, we could call it today, a sacrifice off. That morning they're going to take an animal. They're going to take uh, an oxen. They're going to cut it up into pieces. They're going to lay it on an altar. And they're going to call on Baal to consume that sacrifice with fire. Now, of course, we know that they're wasting their time. They don't realize that at the time. And so they jump around. They shout. They do everything to get Baal's attention. And the whole time, Elijah, he knows what's going to happen. He's standing there just watching, waiting, probably smirking. And then he says, you know what? Maybe your God's asleep. Holler a little louder, wake him up, see if he'll take the sacrifice then. That, of course, doesn't work. He says, well, maybe he's out on a journey. Maybe he is just ignoring you. Maybe he's busy with other things. And so they begin to shout louder. They begin to, to cut themselves with swords and daggers and lances, drawing blood to appease this idolatrous false god, Baal. And, of course, nothing works. And finally, after many hours of this foolishness, Elijah says, all right, now it's my turn. He takes 12 stones, he builds an altar, he cuts up his sacrifice, places on top of the altar, and then he tells some folks, hey, go get 12 jars full of water and bring it and let's just soak this altar. We're going to dig a trench around it. We're going to soak that. The whole thing is completely waterlogged. There's a trench, a little moat around the altar. It's full of water. This thing is absolutely soaked. And Elijah calls upon Jehovah God. He prays to God. And fire comes down from heaven. It consumes the sacrifice. It consumes the altar. It consumes the dust where all this is sitting. It soaks up, evaporates all that water that's in that trench around it. Leaving no doubt who is the one true God. And then, before the prophets of Baal can escape, Elijah has them all put to the sword. This great victory has been won for God and His people. Elijah stood up and proven once and for all who is the one true God. And then you remember what happens in 1 Kings chapter 19. King Ahab, his wife, the queen Jezebel, they know of what Elijah has done, and so they are conspiring to murder him, to put him to death. And so Elijah, this great man of God who's just won this mighty victory for God, has proven God's greatness. It's proven that God is the true God. The very next chapter of God's Word, we find Elijah hiding in a cave. And we're told there in verses 9 and 10 of 1 Kings chapter 19, the Word of the Lord came to him, that is to Elijah, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. 
I want to ask you this morning. Have you ever felt like Elijah? Have you ever felt as Elijah did in 1 Kings 19 verse 10 that it was you and only you standing up for God against a world that is full of evil and sin and wickedness and darkness? Probably you have. At some point or another, you've undoubtedly felt that there was it was you against the entire world, a world that was just so full of wicked and so full of evil. And that existence, the fact that we as God's people must exist day by day, side by side with evil, is a cold and hard reality of life, but it is inescapable. That's why the Apostle Paul would write to the Romans in chapter 12 and verse 2 and tell them, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's why John would write in 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 15, and tell us to not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust, the desires, the flesh, the desires, the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see, over and over again, we have this admonition to to steer clear of the world, to steer, steer clear of all the world has to offer us. But it's hard. It's difficult. It is so easy for us to fall in love with the world. We're surrounded by it. We have to live in it, and sometimes it is incredibly enticing. Now, we can say all manner of terrible and horrible and awful things about the devil, and every last one of them would be true. But the one thing we have to really give him credit for, that guy is a marketing genius. He takes all of this sin, all of this evil, all of this wickedness that leads to destruction. And man, he sure does sell it really well. He sure does make it look good. And it becomes very difficult, very challenging for us to to live with that, to coexist with that day after day after day. But we have to. We have to live in this world surrounded by evil, surrounded by darkness, because that is where you and I are supposed to go to work for Jesus Christ. You see, that's the second message that this parable teaches us. Is we have a duty, we have a responsibility, we have an obligation to be out in that world casting as wide of a net as we possibly can. Now, most, probably all of you have never had the opportunity to go fishing with my granddaddy. What you would find if you go fishing with him, assuming he doesn't run out of gas in his boat, is about 17 fishing poles that are all reserved for him. And we're going to find us a spot to fish, and we're going to throw a line out of the boat with every one of those fishing poles. And then... We're going to take some little pool noodles that he's affixed a hook and some bait to. We're going to throw those over the side of the boat and let the current kind of carry them downstream a little bit. See if we catch anything off of that. 
And then there's a decent chance somewhere along the way he may have a couple of trot lines up, and we're going to run those and see if he's caught any fish there. Now we're off the knot. He hasn't caught anything. But it's not for a lack of trying. It's not for a lack of giving himself every opportunity that he can. He is going to do everything possible to catch as many fish as he can with as many hooks as he can possibly get in the water. That's the job we as Christians have. We are to be fishers of men. We should be out there in the world, a world that is full of darkness, throwing as many hooks in the water, casting as wide a net as we possibly can, trying to catch as many souls for Jesus Christ as we possibly can. Now, during this time period that we we read about this, the, the first century here, there's a lot of different kinds of fishing nets, lots of different ways to go fishing. The... Bible text tells us here that what we're talking about as we're talking about the parable of the nets is a drag net. It would have had some sort of cork, some sort of bobber on the top of the water to keep the top of the net floating on the water. There would have been weights on the underside to keep the bottom of the net down in the water. And it would be operated one of two ways. You either have two boats stretched out with this net in between them scooping up everything that is there. Or you might have one boat that has it rigged up and is dragging it along behind, again, catching all the fish, catching everything there is there to catch. Eventually, that net's going to get loaded down. That net's going to get full of whatever happens to be in the water. And you're going to haul that net into one of the boats. You're going to open that net up. And then you're going to start sorting out what you got out of that net. Now, when you do that, you're going to get some beautiful fish, some keepers, maybe some you want to take home and mount on the wall in your den and your living room. You're also going to get some scrawny fish, maybe some fish that aren't any good for you for whatever you're doing this for. You're going to get fish you don't want, you're going to throw them back. And there's probably all sorts of trash and junk and debris that's going to get caught up in that net as well. But every bit of that is going to get hauled into the boat, it's going to get pulled out of the net, and then it's going to get sorted out. Just as it is with the parable of the weeds, the parable of the tares, you cannot separate the good from the bad too early or too soon because you're going to lose the good stuff, the stuff you want out of all of this as well. If you pluck up the weeds, you may pull up the the crops with it and ruin your crop. If you try to remove the junk, the fish you don't want out of the net before it's the appropriate time, before it's in the boat, you're going to lose most, if not all, of your catch as well. And the goal in all of this is to catch fish. The goal for us as Christians is to catch fish, to catch souls. And not so we can go around bragging about all the people we brought to Jesus. Not so we can add another notch to our gun belt, as it were. But because every individual we bring to know Jesus Christ is a soul that we have saved from eternal destruction. Now, I've known over the years, and perhaps you have too, I've known over the years of some, which is far too many, Christians that have held off on telling someone about Jesus, that have held back on proclaiming the gospel to someone because they thought, well, you know what, they're they're living so far away from God, they wouldn't be interested. I've seen others that have said, you know what, 
this person is doing this or they're doing that, and until they stop that, I'm not going to tell them about Jesus. I'm not, I'm not going to let them know anything about it. I'm not going to try and bring them to Christ until they stop doing this or stop doing that. Now, I'm going to tell you this as clearly as I can this morning. That's wrong. That is wrong on so many levels. And it is the direct opposite of what our Savior has called us to do. Because what He told His first disciples of His, He said, you know what, I'm going to turn to you. I'm going to make you into fishers of men. Later on, He's going to give them what we have called today the Great Commission. And He tells them to go out and to reach all souls with the message of the cross. Now maybe it's in your uh, translation of the Bible. It's not in mine. It's not in any translation I own. But nowhere in all of that, in any translation of God's Word that I possess, do I see Him telling His apostles to go conduct a background check. There's no time where He says, you know what, make sure you run the fingerprints before you baptize Him. Make sure you run a credit check before you tell Him about the cross. Make sure that you have them fill out a personal history questionnaire. Take a polygraph test. And then after we do all that, we'll sit down and we'll talk about it and we'll determine if we want to preach Jesus to them. What He does tell His disciples is to go. He tells them to make disciples. And He tells them to baptize and to teach. And that is the job that you have. That is the job that I have. But just like any other enterprise, things only work when everyone does their job. Now, my body has many thousands of different parts to it. Perhaps even more than that, I don't know, biology class of many years ago. And every one of those body parts has a different job. My eyes have a different job than my ears. My ears have a different job than my nose and so on and so forth. And just as Paul talked about, if any one of those body parts decides to, to stop doing its job, the body will still function. It will still work. It can still get a lot of things accomplished, but it doesn't work as well as it did. It doesn't work the way it was designed to. It doesn't work at its maximum efficiency. Same thing holds if we try and do a role different than what our body is designed to do. It throws things out of whack. If you've ever messed up your back, you've ever thrown your back out. To, to try and get around, then you have to start compensating the way you do some things. Maybe you walk a little differently. Maybe you pick things up a little differently, whatever. And you may notice after two or three days, man, now, now my leg really hurts. Or now, now my shoulder really hurts, whatever. And it's because you are now using your body to do things that, you're, that different parts of your body are not designed to do. It's the same thing for us as Christians. We have a job to do. Our job is to go out and fish. Our job is to go out and seek and save the lost. And when we do our part, we do what we are designed to do, we do our job, everything works great. But that's why the third part of this parable is so important in all of this. And it goes hand in hand with us being fishermen. Because while we are supposed to fish, that is our job. Judging is not. Now, there are times as Christians we, we're supposed to judge. If you see me this afternoon, tomorrow morning, whatever, out at Walmart, and I'm out there dog-cussing a cashier, you have an obligation to grab me, to slap me around perhaps, and tell me, hey, 
Don't do that. That's not how we act. That's not how we behave as God's people. And you have an obligation to me to do that. When you see Christian brothers and sisters straying away from God, distancing themselves from God, you have a duty to them, to yourself, and to God to address those things. Not so you can browbeat them, not in a mean spirit, got you, unkind fashion, but to do so in a manner of love. That's why the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, he says, Brothers, if anyone is called in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. We have a duty, we have an obligation to our brothers and sisters because we want them to live a godly life. Because we don't want them to bring reproach upon the church our Lord and Savior died for. But most importantly, we have an obligation because we want them to go to heaven. Now, there's also a time for disciplining members that won't repent. And that's a discussion for another time this morning. But none of this means that we get to play God. None of this means we get to decide who's in and who's out. Only God gets to make those decisions. This doesn't mean that biblical teaching is not important. It doesn't mean we should... Just turn a blind eye, we should blatantly accept and endorse those that are living lives not right with God. What it does mean is we need to spend a lot less time trying to sort the catch and a whole lot more time fishing. And when we will do that, we will do our job of fishing. We will allow God to do His job of sorting out the catch. Things will work so much better. We still must teach the lost souls about Jesus. We still must do everything we can to bring as many people as possible to come to know Jesus. But we must allow God to do the judging. Now in all of this, there's also an obligation that we have to assess ourselves. Are we fulfilling our roles, our responsibilities as followers of Christ? Are we living our lives as followers of Jesus so that we will be those that are kept on the day of judgment? Or are we living our lives in such a way as we'll be part of the catch that's thrown overboard and thrown into that fiery furnace? If you're here this morning and your life isn't right with God, I'd encourage you, I'd beg you to change that. beg you to turn your back upon whatever sin there is separating you from God and to restore that right relationship. And maybe there's care, there's worry, there's anxiety and concern in your life. You want us to pray with you and for you this morning, we can do that. Maybe you've never made that good confession. You've never been baptized into Christ, had your sins washed away. And you want to do that this morning. We can do that too. Whatever needs you might have this morning, whatever changes there are in your life that you might need to make, It's the Lord's invitation as we stand and as we sing.